Revelation chapter 2. As we've been going through the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And how each one pertains to many churches today. This morning we're going to look at chapter uh, 2, verse 12 through 17. And it's about the church in Pergamos. It was the compromising church. It was the church that settled in the world. Now, when you hear the word compromise, what do you think of when you hear it? Now, in the world, we think of a lot of things, but as Christians, when you hear the word compromise, what do you think of? And especially when it comes to the church. Maybe you think of wheeling and dealing politicians. Wheeling and dealing business people. When you think of compromise, maybe you think about giving in to power or popularity. Now, a healthy compromise involves two people. Or two groups. Meeting somewhere in the middle or coming to an agreement that works out for each other. Again, maybe a business deal. Maybe, you know, you've made some purchases. Maybe you're buying a, a used car and the guy wants, you know, $15,000 for it. And you say, well, you know, I'll give you 10. Oh, maybe how about, you know, you give me, give me 12 for it and, and it's yours. And you kind of stop and you think. And, you know, just for example purposes, you go, I can live with that. So from 15 to 10 to 12, you compromised. It, it, it made you both willing enough to make that deal. What does it really mean to compromise? To agree or appease? To cooperate or to yield? And because the Christians believe in absolute truth. Sometimes as Christians, we feel that if we compromise in any way, we're being disloyal to our principles. And the truth is, it really depends on three things. First, the circumstances. What are the circumstances in that you might compromise or you're willing to compromise to? Second, the people involved. Who am I dealing with? That's important, too. Thirdly, how it, how it will turn out. Because compromise can be good or bad. It can be wise or it can be worldly. And this is the heart of Jesus' message here to the church in Pergamos. To the Christians at Pergamos. The church in the worldly and wicked city of Pergamos found itself caught up in the downward spiral of false and questionable morality. But the one, Jesus Christ, who righteously examined that compromising church really speaks to all churches who are really trying to swim upstream against the current. Against the strong compromising corruption of our world today. Now any dead fish can float downstream. But it takes a live strong one to go against the flow. 
And if you're a Christian, you're going to go against the corrupting flow of this world today. You're going to have to be alive and you're going to have to be strong. The letter to Pergamos was addressed to a church that was drifting into worldliness and carnality. Now, there were some who were resisting following the crowd. But most were going with the flow. They were following the corrupting crowd. Jesus' message here uh, to Pergamos, it applies to us today more than ever. Because we live in a corrupt world that wants us to follow it. Worldliness has gotten into the church. Giving in to the pressures of the world. There are some who will stick to the truth of separation. But most are content like Lot was to get the boast of both this world and the one to come. In Numbers 32, we learn a lesson about compromise and how deceiving it is. Even though it's not obvious at first. Remember when Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, they were, uh, the, the tribe of Israel, they were getting ready to cross over, into, cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And as they were, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh asked Moses, hey, is it okay if we settle here in this part of the land? The land that was recently captured on the east side of the Jordan, it was Gilead. They didn't want to go completely into Canaan. They wanted to stay on the opposite side of the river in Gilead. Now, that was really a compromise. Listen to what they asked Moses in Numbers 32.5. They said, Moses, if we have found favor in your sight. In other words, Lord, if you, you know, Moses, if, you know, if we're good in your eyes. They said, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Don't take us over into Jordan. Moses, if you see fit, you know. If it's okay with you, let us stay here on this side of, the, of Canaan, on this side of the Jordan. Don't take us over there. The reason they wanted to stay in this land of Gilead on the east side of the Jordan and not go across with the rest of their people was, you see, it was, it was perfect. The land that they wanted to stay in, it was perfect for all of their cattle. Now, here, here, here's, where, here's where the deceptions come in. What they asked for made sense. Just like most arguments do that are really excuses to justify our compromise. But the bottom line, it's still a compromise. You see, Israel's, God said, I'm taking you to Canaan. This is my will for you. Israel's place was inside Canaan, not outside. Though it was close. It was just, you know, Gilead was just across the river. Canaan was just across the river. So you see, they were close to where God wanted them to be. But hey, understand that when it comes to, to, to the will of God, being close to the will of God doesn't count. Being close to God isn't good enough in that sense. And too many people are content with just being 
somewhat close to God. In John chapter 15, when Jesus was dealing with relationships, the vine and the branches, Jesus used the word in 13 times. In phrases like, in me, in you, in his love, in my love, in my name, and, all, and so on. But these three, th- these three tri- uh, tribes, these three tribes, they wanted the compromise for their own benefit. So you see, they were content with their place, with their piece of land that partly joined Canaan and partly joined the Gilead area. You see, they were part in Gilead and part in, in Canaan. They're a type of, a world, of worldly Christians today. They want, both, they want to be a part of both worlds. Notice first the outward appearance of compromise. Outwardly, it definitely seemed like a sensible thing to ask for. Why? Because each time Israel defeated a surrounding nation, they would get the cattle. Plus, Reuben and Gad, they seem to have been shepherd tribes, according to Numbers 32. So the more cattle they accumulated, the more grazing land they would need. So it seemed like the smart thing to do to stay there in Gilead, not cross into over into Canaan. So it was an advantage for them to stay east of the Jordan and all of this good pasture land that was in Gilead. But it was a carnal choice. Numbers 32, one says, they, thinking of those three tribes, they saw that the lands of Jazir and Gilead were perfect for their flocks and their herds. It was a choice of the flesh instead of staying strictly in the will of God. And even though this choice seemed well-intentioned, superficial Christians would do all kinds of good things only if they might be allowed just a little bit of what seems like harmless, comp- uh, harmless compromise. They'll go to Bible studies, they'll lead meetings, they'll give generous gifts and other ways of being active and getting involved. And they think that, well, I gave a little bit, I gave something. Even a little bit is a good compromise. I'm doing enough. Jesus said, and does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. We can't do Jesus any favors. Whatever we're doing is we're doing our duty. But notice the real inner truth about the compromise. It was a despising of the inheritance of God. He told the children, I've got a place for you. A place flowing with milk and honey. It's the land of Canaan and I'm giving it to you. This is your inheritance from me. Oh, but I don't want to go there, God. Despising of the inheritance of God. Gilead was so tempting to these three tribes. They said, don't take us over to the Jordan. Or don't take us over the Jordan. And it's the same with those believers today who don't totally follow the Lord in a separated life. They're taking part in worldly amusements and socializing with ungodly people. This is a despising of the inheritance of Christ. 
So I've taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Oh, but I don't want to be there. This compromise by the three tribes was also discouraging to their fellow brothers. In Numbers 32, verse 7 and 9, listen to what the other children of Israel said when they didn't want to come over with them. They said, now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel? It's the same today with worldly socializing of professed believers in the name of Christian liberty. And it was, oh, I have freedom in Christ. Yeah, we do. I have the freedom to drive in this country. But I don't have the freedom to drive the way I want, although you look at the freeway and a lot of people think they do. There are laws that I have to follow with the privilege of driving. God gives us tremendous freedom. But there are limitations. And those limitations are for our good, just like the, the, the driving laws are. So they won't hurt ourselves or hurt others when we disobey those laws. God's not wanting to fence us in. He's wanting to keep the things that hurt us out. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8 9, Beware lest this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Some Christians think anything goes. Because you see, God is so full of grace and he's so full of mercy, which he is. That we don't have to put everything we do under a microscope to see if it's okay. On the other hand, Paul said, examine yourselves. Take a self-examination of your life as to whether you are in the faith. He said, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? He says, examine yourselves. Look at your life because you're a Christian. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Again, see, if we're not living up to the principles of God, we're disqualified for service and for many other things. And it was disobeying God which risked God's promise of protection to these three tribes. When you're out of the will of God, you risk God's protection. The place of promised victory and security was over the Jordan and into the land. That's the way it was then and that's the way it is now. You are, our protection is in, our security is in Jesus Christ. In him. Lastly, notice the after effects of the compromise. These three tribes are a warning to us about or because of their compromise. These three tribes were the first tribes to fall into idolatry and the first to go into captivity. You see, that's where compromise can lead you. The totally degenerate condition of these three tribes who stayed behind can be seen in the Gadarenes where the demons were east side of the Jordan. That's where they settled. 
You see, Christians, our true place is across the Jordan, over the Jordan, into the land which represents the will of God. Rather than be strong and take a stand for holiness, it's more popular to seek a comfortable compromise in the world. And for a lot of people in, 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 in today's church, the word worldliness has become unpopular and old-fashioned. Oh, you, you're too extreme. You're, you're too legalistic. They associate it with no dancing, going to movies, no drinking, no gambling. So does that mean we should change with the times? After all, hey, these are new days, new ways, right? Many churches and Christians are accepting the worldview and the pressure on things like abortion and drinking and homosexuality and premarital sex, just to name a few. Maybe you saw a couple of nights ago the Pope. See what he said now? I quote, the Pope calls for civil unions of same-sex couples in, major, in a major departure from Vatican doctrine. Hey, everybody's doing it. We might as well, too. Though the Bible speaks against it. And still that old, rugged, splintered, bloody cross and its holiness never changes. It never changes. It still stands for death to self and condemnation of sin and destruction of self-confidence. The old rugged cross still brings tears and blood and sacrifices. But you see, a lot of Christians want a new cross. They want a new age Jesus. One that entertains and amuses and encourages and feeds the flesh and brings fun and games. But on that cross, you see, they won't die. This is the cross of a popular Christianity rather than a saving Christianity. But the Bible does not hesitate to condemn worldliness <clears throat> for the sin, serious sin that it is. What is worldliness? Worldliness is any preoccupation with self or interest in the temporal world system of life that puts anything temporal before the things that are eternal. James says in chapter 127, pure and undefiled religion in, involves keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Because, he says in chapter 4, 4, because friendship with the world is enmity or hostility toward God. So whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, you can't be friends with the world and God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Here it makes the believer's duty to avoid worldliness absolutely clear. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The church at Pergamos, like many churches, they did not listen to the Bible's warnings against worldliness. And because they didn't, the church drifted into compromise and it was in danger of becoming entangled with the world. 
Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That would be the next step in the downward spiral from the Ephesian church's loss of its first love for Jesus Christ, getting entangled in the world. A.W. Tozer said this, The power of God in our life enables us to live contrary to the culture around us. Many churches have allowed the culture to come in and change them. If the world is at home in a church, then church is no longer, then that church is no longer a New Testament church. If the world is at home in a church, that church is no longer a New Testament church. Joshua said, choose you this day who you will serve. Choose who you're going to serve. Because you can't serve the world and God. So we begin now our our study in, in verses 12 through 17 with the faithful Christians in the church. Look at verse 12 of Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Pergamos was the ancient capital of the province of Asia. And it was said to be the place where parchment was first used. The word Pergamos means citadel in the Greek. Pergamos was 50 miles north of Smyrna and it was built on a hill 1,000 feet above the surrounding countryside. It overlooked the valley uh, below, making it a, a natural fortress. It was a sophisticated city. <clears throat> it was refined. It was a center of Greek culture and education. It had a 2,000 volume library. But it was also the center of four cults and it matched Ephesus in the worship of idols. The city's god was Asclepius, whose symbol was a serpent who was considered the god of medicine, the god of healing. People would come to Pergamos from all over the world just to seek healing from this foreign god. And as usual, Jesus starts the letter to here to Pergamos with a reference to himself and establishing himself as the judge who will make war against his enemies at the second coming. And defeat them with his words. As judge, Jesus carries a sharp two-edged sword. The word of God. The word from Christ's mouth symbolizes his word of judgment. Jesus' enemies who gather against him with all kinds of weapons are going to be cut down by the words of his mouth. Verse 13. Jesus, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Jesus now gives the word of commendation. They were loyal to his teaching and to him. Even though the believers were in a difficult place and experiencing difficult circumstances, The believers in Pergamos courageously hung in there. They kept their faith in Jesus Christ. He commended them for continuing to hold fast to his name. Even though they were living where Satan's throne is. In other words, where Satan dwells. Now, Satan is a created being. So he doesn't have any attributes 
of deity. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He doesn't even come close to being like God in any way. He's powerful. And he has a very effective company of fallen angels and demons at his service. And they're highly organized. They watch and they destroy. He uses his power through a system made up of thrones. Satan does. Dominions, principalities, powers, rulers of this, uh, this world's darkness and wicked spirits in high places, Paul said. Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. He also called him the prince of this world. So he may have a, a throne in the heavenlies. He may have a throne here. Even with the persecution and suffering that the, that the people went through there, the faithful Christians at Pergamos continued to hold fast to Christ's name and Jesus. They didn't deny the faith. They didn't swerve from their faithfulness to Jesus from the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. The faithful Christians at Pergamos lived the truth of Christ's words when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell, hell shall not prevail against it. No amount of satanic opposition can destroy genuine saving faith like those believers had in Pergamos. The church at Pergamos kept its faithfulness even in the days of Antipas who Jesus says was his witness. Jesus in verse 13 called Antipas my faithful martyr who was killed among you. Now we don't know any, <clears throat> anything else about Antipas other than what's written here. But he might have been one of the leaders of the Pergamus church. Tradition says that Antipas was roasted to death inside a brass bull during the persecution started by the emperor Domitian. The word martyr comes from the Greek word martis, meaning witness, which is found 18 times in different ways in the book of Revelation. Later on, it came to mean one who died because of his faithfulness in such witnessing, like it does here because so many witnesses uh, paid the price with their lives for following Jesus Christ. Verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So they had the false teaching in the church. The church at Pergamos stayed loyal to Jesus and Christian truth. And it faithfully endured even at the very heart of satanic oppression. But still, everything wasn't okay in Pergamos. After Jesus commended the Christians here, he let them know, you guys did well, you did good, but I have a few things against you. And Christ's concern was that they had some Christians there who were holding on to false teaching. There were two false doctrines in this church. There was the doctrine of Balaam. 
This was his teaching, doctrine of Balaam. His teaching was to Balak, King Balak. He told King Balak, look, corrupt the people who couldn't be cursed. He said, corrupt the people by tempting them to marry women of Moab, that is, out of the faith. Defile their separation and abandon, get them to abandon their pilgrim character. So it's that union of the world and the church, that spiritual adultery. Pergamus had lost the pilgrim character. Wanting to be a part of the world. See, we are pilgrims. Christians, we are, pil- we are passing through this world. We are passing through this life on our way to heaven. That's why we're not to have, you know, to have a, a love for this place or to hold on to this place. It's not our home. We're passing through. But God's people here lost that pilgrim, sp- that pilgrim status. Uh, you know, again, entangling their lives with, with those that weren't of their, of their faith. The Moabites. They were living where Satan's throne was, which was in the world. And a lot of times, you know, the, the church said, hey, you know what, well, let's, let's be more relaxed in our devotions. You know, our devotion to this and our devotion to that. Let's not take it so serious. Let's not take things so serious in our Christianity. We see a lot of that today. While most of the Christians in Pergamos were faithful and loyal to the truth of God's word, there were some Christians in the church who came to believe false doctrine. And Jesus takes false doctrine very seriously. He doesn't put up with it. Our Lord Jesus holds it against anyone in his church who accepts and spreads error. That is unbiblical truth, unbiblical teaching. And false doctrine is to be dealt with. It's to be dealt with. And if they refuse to repent, put them out of the church. That's what the Bible says. Listen to what Paul says to Titus in Titus 3, 10 and 11. Paul said, reject a divisive man. Notice, after the first and second admonition. That is, after you warn them one time, two times, and they still don't listen, give them the boot. Reject that divisive person. Because Paul says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Paul said in Romans 16, 17 through 18. Now I urge you, brethren, notice, note those. The word means mark those. Mark those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattery speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Like some churches today, the church of Pergamos didn't do that. They didn't obey the biblical command to deal with those who did not obey God's word. Balaam was a prophet. He was hired by Balak, King Balak, to curse the children of Israel. Because King Balak was afraid of their prosperity that they might, you know, take over his land. Balaam knew the truth. And he had a real good knowledge of God's character. And Balaam was was quite aware of the vision of the future for Israel. And he had a, a commendable desire to die like the righteous. 
Balaam did. But he had two deadly lusts, wealth and women. The New Testament uses Balaam as a key example of an apostate. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, every man has his price. Well, Balaam had his price too. Even though God warned Balaam not to respond to Balak's invitation, Balaam did anyway. And four times, Balaam tried to curse Israel, and each time God changed the curse into a blessing. But Balaam was afraid of Barak. He was afraid that Barak would get mad at him for not cursing Israel. And Balaam was afraid that he wouldn't get paid. And that he might even lose his freedom and his life. So Balaam comes up with an idea that's made him a reproach in the Bible. He made the devilish suggestion to King Balak, Look, King, if you can't curse the people, corrupt them. So in the doctrine of Balaam, we see the wisdom of this world. Balaam taught Balak, look, if you corrupt them, God will have to correct them. And if God corrects them, you can be sure that their numbers will diminish and their threat to your kingdom will be gone. He says, because their God is holy and he's a jealous God, he's not going to put up with sin. He won't let them sin. Without being punished. So Balaam taught King Balak how to use the holiness of God's character to accomplish his own evil works. And just like a lot of Christians today, abuse the grace of God. Oh, I know God is love. I know he's full of grace and mercy. I know that I shouldn't do this, but I'll just ask him to forgive me. Man, you can't abuse God's love and grace like that. You can't know that you're doing something wrong and sinful against God and then say, well, I'll just ask him to forgive me. That's not, that's not real forgiveness. That's not true repentance. So Balaam taught King Balak how to use abuse or how to abuse the authority of God. The doctrine of Balaam also involved the worship of this world. He taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the children of Israel. That is to eat things that were sacrificed to idols. His thinking was simple. Get the people caught up in idolatry and God will judge them for sure. Why? Because God hates idolatry and anything connected with it is made clear all through Scripture. Balaam knew enough about God to know that any deliberate involvement with idolatry that God consistently warns against would bring punishment sooner or later to the people. God's warnings against idolatry of this world is clear and simple. The fact that a large part of the professing church has embraced idolatry makes the judgment of Christianity a sure thing. And I'm wondering what's happening today. Look what's going on today with this plague. This pandemic. I believe it's God's hand. Bringing judgment. Against the sinful world. A world that doesn't want God. That doesn't want prayer. Doesn't want the Bible in the school. You can have a Bible in jail. You can't have one in school. They got it backwards. 
If you give them one in school, maybe they won't end up in jail. I believe it's God's hand of judgment upon this sinful, corrupt, perverse world. But idolatry can be more deceiving than the blatant worship and adoration of idols. The doctrine of Balaam in its broadest form is to bring, to bring something and to set it up between you and God. It's easy, it's easy to set up something that you love, a person maybe that you love, or some secret desire that you have, and, and allow it to come between you and God. So that God is the one who's robbed of both worship and service. Balaam's doctrine was also characterized by committing sexual immorality. He taught King Balak to convince Israel to commit fornication. And many of the Canaanite cults use sexual immorality as a part of their worship service. Balak, <clears throat> Balak took advantage of the idea. And as far as Israel was concerned, it had a great measure of success. The doctrine of Balaam simply says that the wicked practices of the world aren't really sinful and that they can be used as a way of accomplishing your desires. So then, the doctrine of Balaam was really an attack on the principles of separation and sanctification that God expected Israel to keep. But there was another form of false teaching that was happening at Pergamos, not just the doctrine of Balaam. There was also the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, there were some there who in the same way welcomed the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which God said, I hate that. Abusing the biblical teaching on Christian liberty. The Nicolaitans taught that Christians could take part in pagan orgies. So they seduced the church with immorality and idolatry. The error of the doctrine of Balaam is that they denied the headship of Christ. The error of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is the defiling of the members of the body. The majority of the believers at Pergamos didn't take part in the errors of, of either sinful group. They stayed steadfast and loyal to Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. But by tolerating the groups and not exercising church discipline, they shared in their guilt and that, and that brought the Lord's judgment. Verse 16 and 17. Jesus said, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Jesus is here now in these verses. He's standing in the midst of the congregation in Pergamos with a two-edged sword. He warns the church. He says, repent. Or else I will come to you and quickly fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice the church is still his. 
but he refuses to acknowledge those people that are defiling it. He declares war against them. And he knows exactly who these people are. He knows how to separate the chaff from the wheat, the sheep from the goats. And these three things mark the heresy at Pergamos. Idolatry, immorality, and unfaithfulness. Those were the sins. Idolatry, immorality, and unfaithfulness. But he said to the overcomer in the church, they kept themselves from all three of those things. And he, re- he will reward them according to their works. He kept himself from idolatry and refused to eat things offered to idols. The Lord said to these people, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, notice, overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now, manna was God's miracle food. It was angel food in the wilderness, how he fed the people for 40 years. It poured down from heaven for the children of Israel through their wilderness journey. And to eat of the hidden manna is to show in a symbolic way that the overcomer may feast on Christ in the hidden place. Now, the wicked, hey, they would prefer the endless buffet that the world spreads out before them. Oh, you can have this and you can have that and you can. Oh, this is just wonderful. You, this is all for you. The world offers you everything that appeals to your carnal appetite. Oh, eat up. And you know what? The world serves it deliberately to insult the living God. They watch how many dine in. Oh, isn't this taste, isn't this good compared to what God is offering you? Here, enjoy it. It's better than what God is serving up. The true child of God would rather be alone with the Lord God, enjoying the spiritual food that he gives. And the overcomer overcomer kept himself from immorality and would not take part in the loose living of those who did. And the Lord said to those people, I will give you a white stone. Now, the white stone was actually used in voting. It was the stone of acceptance, of approval. A white stone meant yes, a black stone meant no. Jesus said that he'll give us a white stone which means accepted. I've been accepted by God in Christ. And if nothing else, this stone is a symbol of eternal purity. The overcomer is given evidence that he's entered into a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the victor over every defiling thing. And Jesus said, oh, this white stone, it has a new name written on it. But he says, no one knows the name except the one who receives it. As the Bible says, we can't know what that new name is until we receive it. Now, the new name will serve kind of, if you want to look at it, as as the believer's ticket into heaven. You have that white stone, man. You're getting into heaven, into glory. 
In a special way, it will reflect God's special love for and devotion of every true child of his. In closing, the church at Pergamos faced the same choice that every similar church faces this morning. It could repent and receive all the blessings of eternal life in the glory of heaven. Or you could refuse it. You can refuse to repent, reject Jesus Christ, and face the horrible reality of having the Lord Jesus Christ declare war on you. Staying on the path of compromise sooner or later leads to judgment and destruction. And I'll finish this, with this quote from George, uh, G. Campbell Morgan. The church did the most for the world when the church was the least like the world. You know, a boat's only good when the water stays on the outside. When that boat begins to take on water, it's in trouble. I think the church today is like a boat and it's taken on water. And it's starting to, to tip. It's starting to lean. And unless we repent and humble ourselves and pray and turn away from our sinful ways, that boat's going to go down. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you so much for your wonderful word, God. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, Lord. We thank you that we can repent of our sins. We thank you that you've given us the power to overcome any and all temptations, God. And Father, we can compromise in those things that are not essential in the faith. We can't compromise the way to heaven. We can't compromise the cross. We can't compromise the blood. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. And in that, we cannot compromise. God said, you must come to me my way. And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. As we're all praying. And praying for that person next to us. If you're here this morning and, and you want to receive Christ, just lift up your hand and put it down. Lift up your hand and just put it back down again. It just requires a repentance, a prayer of repentance. Okay, I had one hand go up. Anybody else? Anybody else? Okay, I'm going to pray out loud this prayer. And you repeat it in your heart to the Lord with all of your heart. And, and you know what? Even if you didn't raise your hand, you want to accept it. That's fine too. All the Lord cares about is a prayer of repentance. So I'm going to pray this prayer out loud and you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, Please forgive me, Lord, 
for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to walk with you, to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Welcome to the family of God. For those, if you said that, pray amen. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, uh, see Pastor Tony or myself or any one of those, these folks up here. We'll be glad to get you one and just kind of point you in the direction you need to go uh, in your new walk with Christ. And uh, just share it. Share that faith with other people. Uh, before I go, I'm going to pray for uh, the offering and uh, just to let you know that uh, tonight we're going to have a, a time of prayer. As I have said in the past, we're going to spend the night in prayer tonight.